You are listening to Booch News with Ian Griffin, a podcast all about kombucha. So today I'm on the phone with uh, John and Lisa who run Moody Cultures Kombucha in State College, Pennsylvania, out on the East Coast. How are you doing, guys? Doing well, thanks. How are you? When did you first discover kombucha and, and from that, when did you launch a company? So I, I discovered kombucha actually out in uh, San Francisco. I uh, went out for the Super Bowl and went up to Napa. And uh, that was really the first time I've enjoyed kombucha. Uh, I couldn't get it back in State College. I would have friends bring um, one particular brand from um, New York City when they'd visit. Um, and it became so hard to get, I started making my own. Um, I got Lisa involved because she's a much more creative person and uh, helped me with flavors and, and uh, design and, and um I guess I took a trip up to Vermont. Uh, it was a craft beer, craft brewery trip with friends, and they had kombucha on tap at a lot of the um, craft breweries and a lot of uh, like little country markets, and that was really uh, missing from state from state college. And I thought Pennsylvania in general. So what year was it? When I mean, what year did you go to the Super Bowl in Napa? Uh, it was Super Bowl 50, so I think, Lisa, we've been open three years now. It'll be three years in September. It will be, oh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you would have come very near. I'm literally half an hour's drive from Napa here in Vallejo, California. So, Lucky um, you. That's good to know that's where you first, that was your first taste or experience of kombucha then? In the, first in positive the one. <laughs> first positive Yeah, one. first positive okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the two of you uh, teamed up to launch the company three years ago. Um, so over the last three years, what have been, what's the journey been like? I mean, did you start brewing at home to kind of experiment with the, with the uh, methods and the flavoring and so on? Yeah, I started home brewing um, and just doing simple flavorings. Uh, I'd take it to friends and, and to work and you know, a five-gallon carboy would last for a week and then a couple of days, and then, um, you know, I, I wound up having none for myself. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's when I started to consider it, and then got Lisa involved probably pretty, bef- even before I started considering going commercial, um, just experimenting with um, some of the Flavors. recipes. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Lisa kind of took over and... and uh, just put me, made me do all the heavy lifting. <laughs> it's not true that I took over, but I definitely don't do the heavy lifting. <laughs> yeah, we started, um, John had uh, started with, like he said, um, the carboys. And so when we, were, when we realized we were outgrowing the carboys and that um, glass, breaks really easily on hard flooring um we yeah. upgraded what was it john like a, a year and we had a 48, half ago we had uh, two years ago we had 48 glass carboys uh that we would brew in uh all seven gallon and then yeah probably i want to say it was maybe a year uh, six months after we started uh, we we had to bump up to one barrel uh, stainless unit tanks 
also from a California so by then, company. By then, you were a, were you in a commercial space? By then, you were renting somewhere uh, dedicated. No, to um, Pennsylvania actually has some pretty um, permissive um, laws as it relates to home food production. So mm-hmm. they're generically called cottage laws that um, we were able to get my basement. I have a basement apartment at my house. And we were able to get that commercially certified. And that's where the brewery currently is and is currently packed. Oh, so you're kind of living, it's in your residence um, in the basement then? Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know the uh, local regulation. So it was inspected or whatever, and you got permits to to be a Mm -hmm. commercial company based on them. Okay, so so you haven't... So you're still in that location. So you basically moved from your kitchen downstairs and moved from the carboys to the gallon stainless steel tanks. Correct, yep. Yeah. Um, and Sorry, one, did I say one gallon? Was it one barrel? You said one barrel. One barrel thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. And so as you develop, as you grew, um, I mean, what was the – milestones in terms of maybe was there a spike in volume when you switched? I, I see right now you've got, what is it, three, six, nine, looks like nine flavors. I can see on a, on a nice old brick wall here lined up on your website. Um, did you gradually go, for, what, was the, what was your first flavoring? Was it just one or did you go with three or four to begin with? I think that was the very first, first one was lemon ginger. Lemon ginger. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we and then bumped it to like four or five. Mm-hmm. Then we started doing um, one to two seasonals every every season, and then some of the seasonals really stuck, and and some that we thought would didn't, and so that's kind of that's a fun process um, that you know when we get to switch flavors up, but we also. You know, as with anything, anytime we have a new flavor or a new idea, then we know that we're probably three to five months out from it actually coming to market because by the time we, you know, have the artwork developed, um, we try to use as much local influence as we can. So we have a local artist who does our um, sketches for us for our labels. Um, Mm. And we had another local um, uh, woodworker, actually, who developed our, our taps. Um, and so by the time, you know, the process ends up coming to fruition, we're usually planning about three to five months in advance. Um, we started with a glass, uh, bottles that were square and they were really cool, but they were not cool at all to label, um, because we couldn't roll them through because they were square. So I would say that was another big moment when we went from the square bottles to the round and suddenly labeling got much faster. That was pretty were great. You, were you labeling manually though or did you have a bottling line or any kind of machine? We were Just labeling a roller. and yeah, we were labeling before we were labeling completely manually and and bottling manually actually. And then um, John liked to take on um, he says I'm more creative, but that's really not true. He's super creative when it comes to um, large projects that he can do and create with his hands. So he, for example, 
decided that he was going to weld us our bottler. So he bought a welder and created our bottling system for our round bottles. So that's how we bottle now. And then we just have a manual handheld uh, labeler that we roll them through. Okay. Okay. So it's uh, it, it, and has it always just been the two of you, or have you hired uh, other other help? Are there other people involved in getting it to market? Um, we have not hired anybody. We have a couple friends that just like kombucha, so they'll come and help us out from time to time. But it's really just Lisa and I. Okay. Okay. Well, so, it, but it's your. Um, it's your full-time occupation, or do you, do you have a? Some people I know brew, uh, and they still have a day job. Um, yeah, yeah, we, we, we both have day jobs. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Great. If you if you had to do it all over again, from where you began three years ago, do you think is there anything you wished you'd done differently from the get-go that would have made a difference? I have one. Hmm. I, I would have skipped over the carboys entirely mm. and mm. just invested early and, and not gone through all the work that's involved with uh, lifting carboys and, and filtering carboys. And um, with, with our current unitanks from SS Brewtech, we can do it all in one place. We can ferment in one place. We can cra- cold crash it. We can um, flavor it. We can dump out the yeast and, and bottle uh, force carb it right in the tank. So um, that's certainly a, a major efficiency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lisa, I think I know what you're going to say. What you Go say? ahead. I said I think I know what Lisa might say. <laughs> I don't know which one you're thinking. I think one of the things I would definitely say is I would have jumped right to the completely um, bypass the square bottles. That would have been a big one. Um, yep, that was mine. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's um, – and I think maybe, um, it, you know, social media is, a, is definitely its own learning curve. And so I think initially um, if I could have, uh, like, researched more companies so that right out of the gate I had more of an idea for how to manage the social media time. I think that would have been more beneficial in the beginning. I think I have it down now, but that was that was definitely a learning process. Well, it, I mean, I'm curious about that because, as I say, I, I spend an awful lot of time on social media. That's how I locate companies for the um, directory I've built. And also I've looked at a lot of Instagram. Instagram, as you might know, is like 99% of all kombucha companies uh, have an Instagram account about three quarters of a Facebook account and only like 20% are on Twitter. But is there anything like you feel, I mean, I'm looking through your Instagram now and it's, it's wonderful pictures that are varied. It's not all just the bottles that one after the other. But in what way do you think you would have, what, what, what do you think you did learn about social media in general that, that maybe you missed that some other people might benefit from knowing? Yeah, I mean, so much. <laughs> I think um, from the beginning, I think the time commitment is huge. I, it could be its own full-time job um, if one were to – I mean, there's just – there's really no limit to it, you know. So from the 
from the basics of just making sure there's varied pictures that are vibrant and, and alive and have an energy to them that reflect our messaging um, to um, like themed days really th that helps me a lot coming up with, you know, like, okay, as long as I can stick with a, you know, some kind of general theme for each day of the week, that helps me to narrow it down and have a guide. Um, and uh, I had played around a little bit. We tried um, to do one of the scheduling sites, you know, where you can like post the, the photo and the message um, to be released each day. But we found yeah, that we didn't actually have as much engagement. Um, so we, you know, we pulled back from that. Um, I think uh, gauging interaction too is, is or I guess having more interaction and then gauging it is important too. So that's another area where I know, I mean, I know there's so much more to learn, but, you know, getting your audience to engage with you and that back and forth is its own challenge. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, as you, as you probably know, the big, the big guys, so to speak, the health aides and GTs and so on, have, I mean, you, you find them if you just look on LinkedIn under kombucha and social media, there are people whose job titles are just social media manager for the yeah. bigger companies where they've got maybe, you know, hundreds of employees. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've got like over 1,500 followers on, on your Instagram and it looks like you've, well, nearly 900 posts. So you, you haven't, I can understand though, it would be time consuming because you're also getting the kombucha out the door. Um, I mean, do you think social media is a way people connect with your company, or is it more word of mouth than the name? Social media, I mean, locally, I think, you know, it's, of course, people frequent the cafes, and that has helped a lot. But, yeah, social media has really we've, – we've got a lot of business from social media. That's been a lot of our Pittsburgh accounts, and, um, yeah, that's oh. – that's definitely given us a lot of traction. But it is a, it is a challenge. Uh, John and I have had this conversation before about trying to incorporate, you know, how can we make sure we have different age groups represented and how can we make sure we have people from different parts of the world represented. Talking of getting the kombucha out, I mean, as you grew, you were, it sounds like you had the cowboys, took it to your work for the first, you know, people to drink it. But what kind of markets were you – how did you progress there? How did you go from one kind of finding one consumer and the other in different locations? Was it farmer's markets? You mentioned cafes. Yeah, um, a friend of mine wound up um, giving some of my homebrew to one of the local cafe owners, and they basically came to me and said, are you going to start selling this commercially? Um, and I talked with Lisa. I said, are, are we ready to go for it? And, um, and, and we did. Um, so the, uh, the, the craft coffee business is much like craft beer. There's a connection. I've learned things that I had no idea existed, like latte art competitions. And so they're, they're pretty well networked. And uh, after getting in there, we got into a few other coffee shops. Um, and... Really, that became our bread and butter. Um, we got into a couple of craft cocktail bars. We got into um, a couple specialty grocers. That's really been, been um, our, our main market so far. Do you want to add right. to that, Lisa? Well, I guess the only other thing I would say is we, we also do a couple really big 
street events in town that bring in a lot of the Penn State and local community. Um, there's a, an event that, of course, is canceled this year called the Arts Festival. We were pretty excited to get into that last year. It brings in thousands of people into town. And then there's a street market called Pop-Up Ave, which is it's only like two to three times a year, but we've decided to focus on those more than farmer's markets. Um, because we have full-time jobs, we really need some evenings and weekends to focus on the brewing part of things. And so if we're doing those farmer's markets every weekend, it, it takes away from that. Yeah, I've heard from other people that farmer's markets are kind of a real time sink. Uh, yeah. That, okay. But you don't do you, do you do you have any kind of distributor agreement distributor agreements for retail stores or anything like that? In Pittsburgh, we have a distributor because that's out of our market. Um, so we we work with the distributor on accounts um, that we develop and they develop, and then they handle the distribution in that market. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, so this. This conversation is happening at the beginning of May 2020, and of course, the world's turned upside down uh, with coronavirus and COVID-19. And I've seen from your Instagram that you're very much uh, doing curbside delivery, uh, doorstep. Um, how, how is it uh, working out in terms of uh, satisfying, you know, keeping the, the brewing going and, and getting it out the door? Is it and presumably, your day, are you still, is it the kind of work you do in your day jobs that you can still work from home, or are you furloughed there, and so you're pretty much all around uh, moody cultures? We're, we're both working from home now. Um, so, yeah, I would say both of us have more flexibility now than pre-COVID days. <laughs> okay. um, during the daytime. But, um, yeah, our curbside delivery has, certainly helped, as has um, the fact that some of the coffee shops that we're in and restaurants offer um, delivery. Um, so those avenues have certainly helped us to stay, you know, to stay afloat and to keep it out in the community. But we're definitely feeling, you know, the lack of people sitting and hanging out in, in places that offer us ordering cocktails, you know, from the restaurants or sitting around having a couple bottles of kombucha in a coffee shop. That audience just isn't there right now. Right. But in a way, you could say, I mean, the, the companies who are probably hurting more are the ones whose full income is from their kombucha company. And right. maybe, maybe in a way you have, you know, a bit of a, a bit of freedom there because your, um, the day jobs are still paying the mortgage or the rent or whatever. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's good to yeah, know we're that, not you know, stressing. You, yeah, we're no. not stressing over covering any ongoing fixed cost. And you're also providing a, a great service to people in, the, in that region who, who like your kombucha. They can still get it. But I, I did want to, um, before we wrap this up, uh, ask Lisa about something that I think is absolutely unique um, on your website, which is your art. It says, A Cultured Art, uh, Moody Art, and... I presume, Lisa, you're the artist, right? These are all your creations that people can see on the website. Correct. Is that right? That's wonderful. Yeah. So you've been, you've been creating art uh, before you started brewing kombucha. I presume it's been something that you, you've done. Yeah, I just, I, 
I don't, I, I'm just kind of weird when it comes to looking at things and wanting to make something out of them. And so for years, I, I was in performing arts um, and dance and acting for quite a while and then um, sold my jewelry down on the streets of Soho when I lived in New York. And um, uh, so I've always dabbled in, you know, various mediums. And so when we started making kombucha, um, John's really good about using the scobies um, that were completely finished with for compost. And we I just started talking about what a cool thing it was. You know, it's like this jellyfish leather-like consistency that I thought there just has to be something cool to make out of this. So I started trying to do some kind of bowls, like useful bowls, like almost like coffee table bowls with it. Um, and that was okay, but we, we went over um, to dinner at a mutual friend's house, and he had these masks on the wall that were from organic materials. I think one's from um, the bark of like a, maybe a white birch tree, and then another one is made from a beehive. And somebody said, like, what if you tried to do your masks out of SCOBY? And I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. So... I started experimenting with it. Um, John had a dehydrator that I used um, when I do my forms, and uh, I had felt it in the past. And so some of the masks have um, some of the, like, cashmere or yak or merino wool that I've used in felting. Um, others are just, um, others have the ingredients from kombucha. It might be a tea or the chamomile that we use or um, rosemary. And then... Um, I purchased my glass from a local framing uh, company here in State College, and then an Amishman, maybe 30 minutes outside of State College, um, makes my frames for me. So um, I also, I've gotten into acrylic painting, and so some of the masks soon are going to have an acrylic, more of like a, a colorful background. Um, right. But yeah, I'm always experimenting with kind of weird things. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I, I'd encourage people listening to the podcast to check out the website to see, because it's it, it obviously kind of difficult to describe. Uh, but I can see uh, there seems to be two major types of, of uh, art you're creating. One is, I don't know what you call it, is that the like swirly, colory, uh, you know, with uh, titles like Before the Storm and uh, The Car. Yeah, those are, yeah, that's acrylic on canvas. So those are acrylic on campus. And then there's the more unique, which I, mm -hmm. con I consider their faces, right? Are they, are they known as life masks or death masks? Or they're, are those formed by literally pressing the SCOBY on a, on a willing person's face? Or are, do you form them just you know, out of the SCOBY by sculpting them? It's kind of a mix, actually. Um, I... I have some molds of different – I'm a big fan of exploring other cultures, um, and so something that I love is the, the different structural images depending on where someone is from in the world. And so that's something that I wanted to have represented in the masks that, you know, oh, this one looks like it could be someone from the Middle East, or this one looks like maybe someone from an African country, or this person, you know, looks North American. Um, so – some of my molds are specific to a different cultural, like I wanted that my goal was to have it 
uh, look different culturally than maybe the majority of people we see in a in a predominantly white area. Um, some of them I've tried. I had a local um, company who was experimenting with their 3D printer do a mask of, of my face, and so I've tried um, some like that. Uh, but once I have the mold done, then I kind of stop it as it's drying and do my own um, sculpting. Because if, I, if okay. I just allow it to go, it kind of, it's not as distinct. So it's kind but of you're not kind of... You're not kind of asking friends to lie still while you smush a scoby over their face, then? No, I mean, I'd be happy to do that and give them a little scoby facial, but I think they may have okay. to lie there for about five days, so it might oh, be. Oh, no. <laughs> but, yeah, I see, I see. I mean, for those people who are interested, uh, these are all presumably, I mean, I'm looking at one here. It says hardship, scoby mask over black tea framed in natural mm -hmm. stained poplar. So the mask is surrounded by the tea that you would use to make kombucha. And um, this is presumably, this is a one-off uh, unique piece of art, right? It's not like people do uh, some art you get and it's whatever it's called. You know, it's like one of 50 or two of 50 and so on. Right. No, each one is, is very much, yeah, its own. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. that's great. I, I, I'm very... I mean, it's just gorgeous. And the photographs you've Thank got you. of the art um, on people's walls and it looks like in different locations give a real impression mm -hmm. of the um, way it could, you know, enhance somebody's living space. I can see one here. It looks like above a bathroom, very modern kind of, you know, look to it. Um, that's great. Well, is, is there... Um, What's for the future for you guys as far as moody cultures? I mean, hopefully we'll all be back at some point to a, a virus-free world in some sense, even if it's not a completely the same as the one we left. But are you, uh, <laughs> do you have any plans up your sleeves as far as the future goes, or are you just going to keep, keep making the, the good kombucha that you've been making? We, we really looked at, at this for a while, and um, we're, we're going to be moving to cans. So we just ordered a, a uh, small footprint can line. Um, and there's a couple reasons for doing that. Um, cans are much lighter and more eco-friendly than, than a glass bottle. Um, we lose the ability to ship. Uh, we, can, we can maintain the quality better as well. Um, and then it, we also feel that the economy is going to be hurting for a while. So um, the ability to sell six, seven dollar pints of uh, kombucha uh, at the rate that we were in the past, um, I, I, we don't believe that that's going to continue. So canning uh, in a slightly smaller volume allows us to bring the price point down pretty significantly to potentially um, enter grocery channels and, and um, convenience channels as well. That's great. Well, good luck to the both of you there in uh, Pennsylvania as, uh, as you continue to create uh, great kombucha and great art and uh, supply the neighborhoods uh, with what people need at this time to boost their immune system and, and stay hydrated. <laughs> thank you so much, and thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you. Thanks for listening to Booch News. For more about kombucha, please visit boochnews.com.